Hi everyone, it's Dina McKay, and I'm back with a brand new episode of Black Tech Unplugged, the podcast that allows Blacks in tech to share their authentic stories with you, the listener. On each episode, the guest talks about how they got into tech, their work in the industry, and lessons they've learned during their journey. You can find full show notes for this episode on blacktechunplugged.com. Let's jump in. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a brand new episode of Black Tech Unplugged. This is the last episode for the season, meaning no new episodes will be coming out until 2024. But that's okay, because you have 83 episodes to catch up on before the new season starts. On this final episode of this season, I'm joined by the remarkable Kelly Jones. Kelly is the co-founder and general partner for 68 Capital, a seed stage fund for Black and Latinx entrepreneurs. For the last five years, Kelly has led the transformation of a more diverse tech ecosystem in Indiana through her organization, Be Nimble Foundation, which you can learn about by listening to episode 18 of Black Tech Unplugged. Shout out to her cousin, Jeff Williams, who joined me for that conversation. But let's get back to Kelly. Since starting Be Nimble, she has trained 40 plus Black and Latinx founders through her accelerator, upskilled Black career transitioners into tech careers, and has invested over $1 million in capital and startup resources. Before launching Be Nimble and 68 Capital, Kelly was also a program manager for Techstarch Heritage Group Accelerator. Prior to relocating to Indianapolis in 2017, she lived in New York and Los Angeles and was the founder of an experiential marketing company specializing in events and go-to-market strategy for consumer tech companies and later led sales, events, and marketing for venture-backed digital media brands such as Hip Hop DX, Blavity, and Afrotech. Kelly has been honored by the Indianapolis Business Journal as one of the 250 most influential business leaders, and 68 Capital has was honored as Investor of the Year at the TechPoint Mira Awards. She also is civically engaged in serving on the boards of Impact Central Indiana, Employee Indy, Vanguard Collegiate of Indianapolis, and the Venture Club's Next Gen Group. So when I tell you Kelly is that girl, she is that girl. And on this episode, we discuss all of this as well as about being a VC and how founders can get money. We literally take a moment to break it all down like you are five years old. And it's not just for you, it was for my own knowledge too. So we talk about being a VC, why networking is needed in tech, and emotional intelligence. Let me touch on this a moment because I mentioned several resources in the episode, but not directly, so let me mention it here. First off, I mentioned an FBI agent. Her name is Evie Pomporis. She's a magnificent resource for learning how to read people, influence situations, and live fearlessly. I heard her on another podcast called What's the Juice, where she talks about techniques to become emotionally bulletproof. And she has a book out called Becoming Bulletproof. So check her out if you're looking to improve your emotional intelligence. Links to this information are all in the extended show notes on blacktechunplugged.com. And then I mentioned two more books that I read for emotional intelligence on the podcast. So the title and author of those books are You Can Read Anyone by David Lieberman and Emotional Intelligence, a Practical Guide by Dr. David Walton. Again, those are in the extended show notes. So you can find all of this information at blacktechunplugged.com 
under the episode show notes. Okay, so that was a lot of resources this episode. Make sure to check them out or share with someone who needs it. Now, before I let you hop into the interview, I just want to take a moment and say thank you for all the support and love for this season. It doesn't go unnoticed. I hope the content is helpful for you and it's helping you in your career path. If there's ever a topic or guest you want on the show, feel free to reach out to me directly. But again, I just want to say thank you for every listen, for every follow, for every subscribe to the podcast. And make sure to continue following me on social. Links are in the show notes during this little hiatus because I will continue to be active on social media. And again, new episodes will come out in 2024. So happy holidays, everyone. And now let's get it. everyone. I'm back with a new guest, Kelly Jones. Welcome to Black Tech Unplugged. So excited to have you today. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Feels like a long time coming. Oh, I know, right? Very long time <laughs> coming like, now that I think about it, but you're here and that's all that matters. Mm-hmm. So you are a woman who does a lot of things. Today, we're going to focus on your current endeavor, which is you are the co-founder and managing partner at 68 Capital. So let's start off by telling my listeners what that actually even means. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So 68 Capital is a pre-seed and seed stage fund. We focus on investing in Black, Latinx, women, LGBTQ founders. And we mostly focus our investments between the coasts, specifically the Midwest and the South. We're agnostic. So we look at all sorts of companies, everything from ed tech, fintech to CPG and consumer products. Right now we have 19 companies, I believe, in the portfolio. And we write checks anywhere between 250000 to 500000 We're going to break that down into further detail. So let's get into it. So first off, as a co-founder and managing partner, what is your day-to-day like? Every day is different. I'll tell you that. But it mostly is made up of fundraising, which is preparing to fundraise or currently fundraising for the current fund or future funds. A lot of emails, a lot of founder emails, just going through and determining what's coming in my inbox, what's coming through our forms, who we're getting introduced to, and what companies sound interesting. So lots of those kind of meetings, a ton of due diligence. We're a small team. It's only two of us. So when we are looking at an opportunity, we're having multiple meetings, we're having founder calls, investor calls, company calls, partnership calls, customer calls. So a lot of deep diving. And then I would say the other part is a lot of modeling and record keeping and outreach and trying to support our founders as best as we can. And so with all that, including board meetings and things like that, it becomes a pretty hectic job where there's always a lot to do. But I wouldn't trade it for the world. Talking to founders is like my favorite thing to do. And especially talking to founders that we get the opportunity to invest in. So I don't think I'd trade it for the world. It does sound like a lot though. And especially if it's only (laughs) you and one other person, I can only imagine when you actually get a break. I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Because in between that too, I should say there's a lot of travel as well, especially now Mm -hmm. since the pandemic, when I was first investing, everything was virtual and Now that things are open back up, pitch competitions are live again, demo days are live again, events, conferences. So you throw all that into on top of everything else. And yeah, it gets to be a little hectic. 
Yes. And you even mentioned how you find individuals or companies that you're going to invest in. Lots of people are using your forms or they're reaching out directly. So I want to just go and elaborate on that a little bit. So if someone is interested in getting funding from you, do they usually go to your website and say like, hey, check out my product? What goes into that exactly? Yeah. I mean, it happens probably a few different ways. So I think one is just cold emails. We, you know, our email is on our website. We do that on purpose. So if people want to just email us directly, they can always do it that way. I've had people reach out to me on LinkedIn. We do have a form on our website too. So people sometimes just submit everything in the form and then it hits all of our inboxes and we're able to go through and see what opportunities are coming in that way. A ton of introductions. So a lot of times there's another investor that's looking at a company or another investor that's maybe invested in a company or committed to invest in a company. Often they're looking for other investors to participate in that round. And so we'll sometimes get intros that way. And then we said really active. So the events that I was just talking about a little bit ago, the best reason for spending time at those things is because you get to get connected to founders that you may not have met or may not even heard of you. And so the value of those events, I think, are really great, especially conferences, anything that's around founders or investors, and even things like accelerator programs when they have their mentor swarms or they're inviting people in to speak. Like Those are great, great, great ways to get connected to companies. But Kelly, let's be real. Everybody's looking for money, especially a minority. (laughs) It's like we are what? Less than 2%. Mm -hmm. And so everybody's looking for money. So I'm sure you get a lot of requests. But what I want to know is what's the secret sauce? What keeps your attention and makes you actually want to invest in someone? Yeah, that's a great question, man. I mean, the thing that's really important to share is that there's no possible way that I as one investor can invest in everybody that comes through my inbox. And I think a lot of times when we say no to a company, I think they automatically think it's because we don't like their company. And so one thing I always like to share is a lot of times it could be anything from timing. It could be just we're at a point where we're not actually making new investments at the time. It could be there's something else in our portfolio that's very similar. So we don't want to have competing things in our portfolio. It could be just fit. We do not like to invest in companies where we don't feel like we can add value. So if it's just something I don't understand, even if it's, it is a great company, a lot of times it's just hard for me to say yes to that because we want to be a value a little bit more than just a check. But I think what's most important is we've broken out the way we look at founders into founder archetypes. We're an agnostic fund, which means we look at almost every industry company type. And so I think a specific type of founder is what I'm generally looking for, both when I read the deck but also when I have that first meeting. And there are things that I can usually always pick up on. You know, coachability. We always say we look for people, we call them the market maker, the community builder, or the bootstrapper. And my reasons for that are because one, we really like to look at companies that are on the road to profitability. I think one of the things um, that's become, actually it's, it's killed us now, but you know, venture is really focused on growth, growth, growth. And I've never really understood why? I mean, I think growth is important. And obviously that's what BC is for. But the tenants of just building a business is building a business that's economically feasible. And so we try to look for a balance of economic feasibility. Like, is there a chance you could actually get to profitability or even a break even? Or are you generating revenue right now? Because if you're not, or if it's going to take a long time, that's not that interesting to me. Mostly because I don't think founders should raise forever, especially since we invest in Black founders specifically. I want to see founders have a great business model first, be able to raise money in order to get that out to market and to get the flywheel going and to keep as much ownership 
of their company as possible by not overly diluting themselves. So we're always looking for that profitability piece. And I think the other things are specifically around kind of company. We love companies that are really disrupting. We love companies that are building things specific to communities that they serve, whether they're products specifically for women or product and innovation specifically for people of color. We love things that are in education, that support entrepreneurs. We love creator economy. That's probably my favorite space right now. Looking at both SaaS and software opportunities, working with the creator economy. I really believe that humans themselves are businesses and brands. And so the impact that tools for that sector of people are going to be really important. And then also one that I love the most, I would say, is CPG. We love product-based companies. So that's beauty, health and wellness, food, any sort of physical product that has the opportunity for growth and scale, mostly because they're already generating revenue. And so it makes it a lot easier to make those investments and to help them scale. A majority of this conversation obviously is around money. And so I want to set the record straight, get all the stereotypes out the way, educate our people. So let's start with the first question is, so VC firms, obviously you're giving money to individuals or companies to invest in. Mm-hmm. And where's that money coming from? Because it's not coming from your own pocket. I mean, maybe you have hundreds of millions of dollars. But I wish. Economy, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what's going on here. So where do you get the money to even invest? I have to fundraise just like founders. And it's interesting because I'm fundraising to fund founders that look like me. So I can only imagine, or I think people should only be concerned about what my process is like fundraising. If my founders are having a hard time fundraising, I have a really hard time fundraising. Right. And so um, I'm, I'm talking to fund of funds, which are just generally big organizations that have access to a ton of capital that they invest for the purpose of making these kind of investments. A lot of corporations and their corporate development departments usually have money that they're able to invest in funds like mine that allow us to invest high net worth individuals. I love people that maybe have angel invested for a lot of their career and now are just less interested in finding their own deals and are looking to invest in someone that they believe can find them the kind of deals that they're looking for. So we talk to a lot of people that have money to invest. Family offices is a great place. Endowments. As you get bigger, you get to get access to like pension funds and all sorts of, of different places where allocation of capital is being used to generate more capital for the people that are investing. So essentially I have investors and then as an investor, I invest in others. And so I have to go through the same kind of fundraising process. And Mm -hmm. one thing that you've mentioned quite a few times is seed stage. And I want people to get familiar with the terminology because we throw out all these terms, but does everyone actually know what it means? I don't know, but we're going to teach them today. Yeah, absolutely. Let's start with seed stage funding or seed stage. What does that actually mean? Power translation is important because to your point, yeah, people throw out a lot of words and we don't really know what it means. And we often change the definitions to to fit whatever it is that we're trying to do. So, you know, I think people define seed stage in different ways. For us, I'll tell you what seed stage is. Seed stage is usually a company that has some product market fit, meaning they have some customers, they've made a little bit of money. Generally, they've made under a million dollars. Usually it's somewhere between a hundred to maybe half a million probably have been around a couple years, maybe have a handful of customers, maybe have three, four employees. That's generally the sweet spot that we invest in. Most of the time, their valuations are under 10 million. They're probably looking to raise no more than about 2 million, 3 million tops. 
that's a good space for us. We do also do some pre-seed deals. There's a couple of other guardrails around that though, because most of the time those companies are pre-revenue, pre-product. So there has to probably be some sort of patent or some sort of novel innovation in order for us to get comfortable, given that they don't have any revenue yet. But we're really looking for revenue. That's top most important. But we're not looking to say that you have millions of revenue yet, but some sort of semblance that you can get there. Absolutely. That's something we're going to look at. Okay. Let's go back to pre-seed for a moment because Mm -hmm. those are people who probably have an idea. They're starting to get some things going. If you are meeting with a pre-seed company, what tips or advice do you have for them in order to really draw people to what they're doing? At those areas, it's all based on what you've learned in your research. So what I'm really looking for is, is the founder sound like someone that can actually build this thing? Meaning, do they have that background or expertise or connected advisors that has me convinced that they can actually take this to market? Like I mentioned before, is it novel? Is it brand new? Is it something we've never heard of? Is there opportunities for IP or patenting? Because again, we're talking about pre-revenue. So you haven't proven that you can make money from it yet. So there has to be something that makes me feel like you can. And then market size and sector. So like, is the market big enough that something like this would solve a big problem? Looking for things like, are there competitors in the market that are, you know, where there's a clear hole where this could potentially fit in? Just all the indicators that say, if I gave this person money, could they take it to the promised land? Or could they take it to that seed stage? Or could they generate their first 100K? That's what I'm really looking for. You know, what's really crazy when you think about it, there's a lot of individuals who are our counterparts and they could be in a pre-seed stage, like not making any revenue. This is just an idea we're floating around. And you even mentioned research is important at that stage. They don't even have any research and we'll get millions. Right. Mm-hmm. So no, just- the ones, the ones that really get me are the ones with no research, but also no like expertise in the space. Like, okay, so you just think you're gonna just do it just because it came to you. And I get like, I love that passion because that happens to me all the time. Yeah, but I gotta ask myself, can I really do that? I don't think I can do that. Can I teach myself? Maybe. Is it gonna take me longer to do that, or should I maybe find somebody that's maybe in and around this space that can help me? Right, like that. That's when you start talking about co-founders and and different things like that. So you got to come with something. You can't just say, I got this idea. You want to give me some money for it? Absolutely not. You're not doing enough research (laughs) for me to want to give you any money for it. Like you got to sell me too, unfortunately. So, But I want (laughs) to call that out because I can't tell you how many times I've seen people who have this idea without the expertise, without going to a, you know, finding a co-founder or getting some research, you really think they're going to come in and just swoop up some money. Right. It happens every day. And get mad when you say no. And like, I have to say no the majority of the time. We only have room for 22 companies in our portfolio. Do you know how many companies I'm getting emails from? There's no possible way that we can invest in all of them. And so I I guess, I don't know if we're going to tips for founders, but that's one tip that I would want to tell founders is like, not every no is a no for that kind of reason. So since we're here, you gotta we might as well no. go into it. We mm. might as well go into it. So yes, what are some tips that you have for founders? Absolutely. So if you talk to an investor and there's a no and they don't give you any straight direct feedback, ask for it. I want to at least give one reason why we said no. And, and I want to do that because I want them to be clear of, of the why. Again, sometimes it's, you would be surprised how many emails I get from people that do not fit the Black, Latinx, women, or LGBTQ. Like, I think people just, like, sinned. 
<laughs> it doesn't matter who they are as long as it's like a fun. Wait, so I, like, I have I a have... question though. Have people even tried to pull, I don't want to say it's a trick, but people, you know, have done this before where mm-hmm. they'll bring on someone like a black, be I like, have... oh, now I have this co-founder. Are you going to give me some money? <laughs> Yeah. And the answer is no. So little sidebar, we do something called a diversity score. And so it's like an algorithm we put together. And what it does is we look at founders, but we also look at team. We look at board. We look at advisors. We look at other investors. And we want to see if there's diversity happening throughout the entire company. You would be surprised the number of companies that I've seen, to your point, that has this co-founder that might be a person of color. And then you look at the rest of the team and it's like, where's everybody else? You know, Mm -hmm. that's not diversity to me. Like, even though you have a founder that's of color, there's no women and it's all the same people that you're going to have the same issue. So, so we look at that, like, that's one of the pieces of our due diligence process is to do that. But yeah, like, I think there's the easy one, the easy ones are like sector fit, timing fit. You know, if you're raising a series A, you can't come to me. I don't have series A investment. So those are pretty easy. That's like tier one. I would say tier two. Or you've got an email, you've looked at it, it may fit all those other boxes, but it doesn't fit for another reason. Most of the time, it's either competitive advantage isn't strong enough. Sometimes it's there's already products out there like that. I don't really see how this is any different or has anything extra to add. It could be, it's just not that great of an idea or a solution. And you just have to tell people like, I would dig in and do a little bit more research on how you're going to solve that problem. And then I would say tier three and four are ones that maybe we have an initial meeting. So maybe we do have that first meeting. Like it's a, it, it's intriguing enough that we want to take a first meeting. After that meeting, if either, usually Nas takes the first meeting. If he's not into it, he'll just pass. If he likes it, then I'll join the meeting. And then if we both like it, then it's like, okay, let's see what this is about. And then we go on the journey. And then the last is like, once we've gone down that diligence journey and then we say, I think we're going to pass. And usually that happens because we uncover something in the market. We uncover something in the product. Maybe we uncover something when we're talking to customers. Maybe we uncover something like as we're digging into the technology and just decide, I don't know if we should do this one. And so then you have to say no again. The last two no's are the hardest no's to do because at that point you've built a connection with that person because you've met with them, you've talked to them gone back and forth. And so it's really hard. So I try my best to give the most feedback at those stages. And if I can, I try to have that as an in-person conversation where we say it, because I want to allow them to ask questions. And I want to make sure that I leave the door open. And I think I do that because I want people to understand that, you know, again, I can't invest in everybody. If I say no, it's for a reason. I'm more than happy to dig into it. You're also more than happy to like, change my mind if you want to. It's probably not going to change, but you can try. (laughs) But I want to give you the opportunity to do that because I think that's just the dignity of this work. Like I didn't get into this to act like every other VC. I got into this because I didn't want to be like every other VC and just see this as like, I'll just swoop them, you know, down the drain. I still find value in black founders and brown founders. So I want to make sure that I'm just there to provide any support we can. And I'll tell you this too, like if we pass and say like, but there's some other funds that I think would be really interesting. Like, can I make an intro or more than happy to chat with you if you need some more help figuring out your go to market? Mm -hmm. I like to offer that because it's important, right? Like I want people to feel supported whether we invest or not. I appreciate that you going above and beyond, I would say. I'm uh, trying. You know, if you say <laughs> no, because I don't, I haven't heard any other investor doing that. But I also don't know every investor. So if anyone's listening and you think you go, <laughs> I, I believe you. I'm just saying. Yeah. 
you we'll mentioned- probably are. We we'll probably are. There's some terms that you mentioned that I want to go back and highlight for listeners. So you said Series A. What is mm-hmm. that? So that's the stage passy. So most of the time at that stage, a founder has made their money. Like they've hit probably a million, two million in sales. And they're raising $10 million, $15 million most times. The only way we can participate in a round of that size is if we've already invested. So we can do mm-hmm. like a follow-on just to make sure we maintain our equity stake. So we'll, we'll often, we just actually did a Series A investment in a company that we previously invested in probably a few months ago. But what I describe Series A, I mean, people that come to me raising their Series A that we've never invested in. Because most of the time, I mean, you've got to be able to write a check that's probably over half a million dollars in order for that round to make sense on the cap table. And we just, our fund's not big enough for that at this phase. And Kelly, we've talked about investing, founders, all that good stuff. But one thing we have not touched on yet is, let's say I want to be an investor and mm-hmm. you started from the bottom and look at you now, you bring them funds. So <laughs> interested and let's just start with the perspective of being an investor. How can they do that? How can they get started? Yeah. So this is coming from, I call myself the most non-traditional fund manager in the world. Because I think if you're interested in VC and you start going down the path, you'll find that most VCs either come from one or two archetypes. Like they have a finance background where they've been in finance for a really long time or investment banking for a really long time. Or maybe they started at a fund as an analyst or an associate and they just worked their way up. I think the other is you're a founder and you exit in a company. And so now you have money and then you decide that you want to start investing and that investing turns into you starting a fund. There's like kind of the two-ish paths that I've seen. I'm neither of those. (laughs) I'm neither of those. You know, I am varied background person that really just loves entrepreneurship. I mean, I have my own businesses. I've never sold a business for a billion dollars, but I've definitely done okay. But I think my personal secret sauce is, and what I tell other people that are interested in getting into VC is why do you want to do it? What is your reasoning, right? And people's reasoning can be very interesting sometimes. Sometimes people's reasoning is, I just want to make money. And that's cool because mm-hmm. I think we all do, right? Some people's reasoning is, oh, I just think, you know, I'd be really good at, you know, supporting founders. It's like, okay, that's cool. But this is not one of those jobs that you can break up with when you choose to not like it no more. Like when you're in it, you got to be in it. One of my mentors told me like, when you choose to do this, like you're in it, you're in a relationship with these founders and your relationship with your investors for 10 plus years. So whatever it is that you're doing here, you got to be ready to be in it for 10 plus years. Do you love it enough to be in it 10 plus years? And so that's always the the first question I ask. My answer to that question is yes, because I just get excited by new ideas and I'm a builder. I like to build things. So I like to build things from scratch and I like to help other people build things from scratch and not to pat myself on the back. I do a really good job at it. I didn't know I would do a good job at it, honestly, but I do good. And I'm and a double founders, down. You do really good at it. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like our founders like, tell us that all the time. Like we're super authentic with our founders. So I think anybody that's interested, especially if you have a varied background or one that's not down the same path as everyone else's, why do you want to do it? I love entrepreneurs and I like building things. And so I always have a suggestion and an idea. And, and that's why I think I do this. The second thing I would tell people to do is Then if you decide that you want to do it, now you got to learn how to do it. But this is not a job that you can just go to school and learn. And I think sometimes people think you can read all the books and you can do all the things. And then all of a sudden you could be a VC and it just doesn't work like that. Again, 
I'm, I do not come from either of those worlds. I've run startups. I've been at a startup. I've seen how they raise money. You know, I've not been through that process with people. I've worked at Accelerator, so I've gotten that view of it. But I know what value I have. And I'm also a very quick learner. And so for me, I did courses and classes and I upskilled myself. I took VC Unlocked. I was in a cohort for emerging managers. I like I did anything that came up that was going to give me more gain. But this is one of those jobs that you have to do it by doing it. So you can learn all the things, but then you have to like get in there because the situations that you're talked to about in these courses and classes are super helpful, but the situations when you get in it are very different because you're dealing with people. And so you're dealing with people based on what they're sharing and you're dealing with people that do things differently than the previous person that you dealt with. And so things like that are just something that you can't experience until you get into it. And so I found a way to lean in a little bit. And so I would say, if you can do that, like try to intern, I'll tell you this, VCs are always looking for an extra hand, especially if you're a smaller fund. So if you're interested in helping with diligence or helping with market research, because those are things that you need to learn how to do, I would say reach out to somebody and see if there's an opportunity. And then the the last thing I would say is get really good at spreadsheets. I will tell you this, if you're not good at spreadsheets, no need no need. Don't even try it. If you're not interested in math and spreadsheets, <laughs> I would not. I mean, you have, you know, obviously we have a CFO and so they manage a lot of, you know, reporting and stuff like that, but I'm good at spreadsheets and I'm actually really great at math. And so you have to understand numbers and you need to re- know how to read a balance sheet. You need to understand how to read a P&L statement. Like these are all things that if you're not interested in any of that, like I wouldn't even touch it. It's a part of the game. It's part of the job. Do you know how many people you just sent running away because you said you have to be good at spreadsheets? I'm sure. That's what I mean. There's there's an Excel spreadsheet course. They're great. Or just practice. But like you have to build models. You got to analyze the models. You got to get deep into this stuff. And it may not be. It's not fun. And if I wish I know people probably think like, man, investing got to be bomb. You get to travel. You get to do all this. I am doing math. And I got two spreadsheets open right now. (laughs) Right now. There's two. And in it's work. Time. You yeah. are doing like, work. You ain't just like going and laying all on the, the time. Floor. I wish. I'm literally sitting in front of people talking and flipping spreadsheets. So yeah, venture math is crazy. And so you need to learn it. So three tips. Yeah. What, what's your why? Take courses. Okay, four actually. Take courses. Try to get an internship. Take an Excel course. <laughs> take, an, take a venture math Excel course. Kelly, I need you to drop some resources though, because you upskilled yourself. What resources did you use? I mean, you mentioned VC Unlocked. Yep. So I got a scholarship to VC Unlocked. That's a program by Stanford. It was great. I liked it because I had already started raising when I got into that course. I got maybe two or three, maybe very small commitments. Because again, the the timing of things too, because I started raising in 2019. 2020 came around, pandemic happened, right place, right time really helped push us forward with the number of companies and corporations and people that were really focused on undercapitalized founders and people of color and all of that. So I think the timing for me worked out. But at the time, when I started that course, I maybe had $50,000 that people said they might give me. And so I thought I had something. (laughs) The fund had a totally different name. And so going through that was great because it really helped me distill down 
what I should be saying in this deck, how I should be presenting it, things that I should be keeping an eye out on, like all the things that I just wasn't sure of how to present, it really helped with. And then I did the first cohort for Recast Capital. So Recast is a fund of funds specifically for women and underrepresented GPs or or fund managers. GP is general partner. And so I got into their first cohort where they were just looking to support emerging fund managers. And so from then, I learned a lot more about LP engagement. And as you raise money from people, what are the reporting things you need to do? Or how do you send updates? Or how do you keep them engaged? Or how you ask them for support? All these things to keep people engaged in your process. So when you do go and raise again, they already know what's going on because you stay close to them. So that was really great. And then I used to do venture deals once a year. So when I started working at Techstars, taking venture deals is a required thing that you have to do, but I'd already done it once. And for a few years, I would do venture deals once a year just to keep practicing at what that process looked like. So that's always a good one to do. And I usually think it's free. So that's one that I think people should look at. And then later, after I raised, because I'm still doing them, I still participate in things. I got into GPX, which is Plexo Capitals sort of emerging manager. Plexo Capital is one of the, like Google's fund of funds, basically. So getting into that alone was like, all right, maybe I am doing something okay. <laughs> you know, but for that, it was just the relationships, relationships with other fund managers like us, relationships with them as an LP, and just hearing directly from LPs how we should be approaching this work too. So all of those were things that that I did before and after raising and that I'm still doing, if I'm being honest. One thing that I have to highlight, because you've said it a lot of times, plus Mm -hmm. other people say it on other episodes, relationships. Relationships Mm -hmm. are the most important thing out here. Go meet you some people. If you don't have the relationships or don't know people, you're not going to get anywhere in your tech career. You're not going to obviously make any money. Absolutely not. Or if you want to be a VC, you're not going to get any money for your fun. Build relationships. If you take anything away, that's another main point that yes away so important and and know that like relationships should never be transactional right like i think a lot of times you connect with somebody and then you have one meeting and they're asking you for stuff and like not to say that you shouldn't do that you can't do that because i think if you want to make an ask to make the ask right but i believe in talking to people when i don't need anything I literally have a meeting, I think after we wrap up, I think probably a little, you know, a couple of hours where I'm going through my fun to deck with somebody just because I want their feedback. Like, what would you want to see in this deck? I've been working on this deck for three months and I'm like, I don't know if it's right. I just need someone to help me. And for me, I'm not asking them for money yet. I just really want their feedback. <laughs> like, I need you to tell me, is this right? Is this what you want to see? What should I add? What should I take away? What don't you like? What do you like? Because... One, I'm bringing them into the process. But I think two, that keeps my relationship good because I'm trying to keep them engaged and I'm not always just asking for something. And I think those are just really important things. And you know what happens when you build relationships that way? You always stay top of mind for people. Mm-hmm. You exactly. always do. Yeah, You know, because like when somebody asks them something, the first thing that'll come up is the last person they talk to. Who did I talk to in the last couple of weeks? Oh, that was so-and-so. And just never know what opportunity might fall in your lap. Exactly. And you know what? Speaking of feedback, you're going through this journey as a VC amongst mm-hmm. other things. What is the greatest lesson you've learned so far? Woo! <laughs> oh my God. Transparency moment. This has been a really like rough. This has been a rough go for me, if I'm being honest. 
I've been on a quest for like supreme emotional intelligence. And I think for anybody, especially if you think you want to do this kind of work or you want to work with founders, having a high level of emotional intelligence is something I call founder bedside manner is really important. Mm -hmm. Meaning you got to imagine I am a type A personality. So, you know, a founder is a type A personality and you are working with them, whether you're investing or not, you're talking to them about something that they've created. Mm -hmm. And you as the expert are giving them feedback, good or bad, to help either validate or invalidate what they're doing. Right. That is always a hard conversation to have. And I've spent a lot of time really trying my best to figure out the best way to give feedback, the best way to make suggestions. And I don't want to call this manipulative, but talking about things in a way that feels a little easier to break down. Like there's between saying, your thing is cool, but I hate all of this. And what do you mm. think about making this shift? What I, re- I read this thing over here that said, duh, 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 duh. I think you should consider adding that to it. So you're not tearing the whole thing apart and then just giving them something else, but you're doing it in a way that I think is super helpful. And so I think if more VCs or, or anybody could just learn to be, I don't know, is it kindness? I don't know if you call it kindness. Maybe it's just being kind, but to just think about how you're giving feedback and how you're talking to people and how you're receiving what's being said to you. I think that actually helps you go a lot further in conversations. And so I've been focusing a lot on that. So I think that's my, my main thing. Well, if you need me, let me know. Cause that's my forte. Really? I might need help. I need a coach. (laughs) I think I need a coach. Well, it's it's been a long time coming. I react. Like Mm. if something is said, I just say, and I've been taking time to say, type your first response delete it and then type the real response. Cause I'll say everything I want to say. Normally I would hit send these days. I just, you know, post that into your notes in your note document, come back and write the real thing. And so it's, it's a journey, but I'm gonna probably take you up on that. Yeah. And <laughs> just a couple of resources to call it out right now. I'll put it in the show notes. There's a woman I was listening to. She used to be an FBI aide. And one thing that I've learned from her is that, it's okay to shut up. Yeah. And we don't do that. But it's like, not that people shouldn't talk or anything like that. You shouldn't share your opinion, but it's the methodology behind it of how to be quiet, take it everything you think you want to say, and then formulate how you're actually going to say it. And so I'll send, I'll put that in the show notes and I'll send that to you as well. But then there's also two different books I've read on emotional intelligence. You mentioned- Okay, I'm going to add them if I haven't read them already. You mentioned (laughs) manipulation. and. I totally agree with you. When you're going through this process, it feels a little bit like manipulation because you're like, okay, Mm -hmm. you act like this. So I'm going to treat you like this. And it can feel like weird, but really Mm -hmm. you're helping that person out because imagine if you just spew whatever you're thinking and you say that to them and that hurts them, what are they going to do? They're going to cower. They're going to go into their shell. So that doesn't help you or the person. Well, it might kind of help you. Like, Ooh, this off my chest. Like, Ooh, thank you. But then that person won't respond well to you. I will send you the title for the two books, but it just teaches you how to deal with different people. Because one thing about humans, people Mm -hmm. are people and how we people or how we react to things can be completely different. But if you learn their reaction and their personality goes uh, a thousand times better because it does, you're helping someone be the best version of them through your feedback and response. 
but one hundred percent. Woo, it take a long time, girl. I ain't gonna lie. Listen, I, listen. That's why I was. I said like I'm on a journey because I've been so used to just being like push, 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 and I bring it down. It's okay. I also ask questions, especially if I get a little remark that's a little snippy. I'm like, hold on. Are they being smart? Or maybe I'm just reading this wrong. Let me ask a question first. All of those things I'm starting to be a lot more conscious of. And you know where I think it comes from is my mom is a very blunt person. I think I'm a very blunt person. I don't think that's ever going to go away. Like the people I love the most, you still get that. You're not getting me thinking through it first. You're just going to get what you get. But I just realized that sometimes my initial response is wrong. And so I feel like I have to spend a little bit of time figuring out, this is how I want to respond, but is this the best way to respond? Is this an assumption I'm making or is this something that I'm just reacting to because I'm sensitive about it or or like I feel triggered? I have to question where it's coming from. And then usually like after I unpack that, then it's like, I know my next step. And it's either to ask a clarifying question Mm -hmm. or it's to make a phone call. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to say like, this is probably not coming across correctly. So I just want to call you to make sure I'm being clear. And usually like that works every time. But I think in like feedback loops, it used to happen to me too, where like, it'd be something like somebody turned into me that I didn't like, but I'd be like, this is wrong. And I'm like, but Kelly, could you have been a little bit more detailed with the instructions? Or could you have shared a little bit more color on how you wanted it done? You know, I know you didn't want to do that because it takes time and you gave it to somebody else to do. So it wouldn't be time, but sometimes you need that because I've also learned, and this is, I guess, a, a learning number two, is that because I think I think really big in my mind, I know how to break down all the steps, but I don't do a good job of communicating all the steps to people. So I just assume that they know how to get from what I just said to the end goal. And so I've been spending a lot more time trying to be very specific on how I like things or how this should be laid out or where things should go. Kelly, you know, you've had a lot of success. Like you say, you've been doing this since about 2019. And Mm -hmm. so I want to know, what do you see as the future for you, especially when it comes to funding? I think I have two things here. I really want to see 68 be the kind of fund that's in the same ranks as the best known funds of the world that made the best investments in some of the companies that we love the most. The people that invested in Google and Amazon and all these companies. I want to be that specifically for founders that look like me and founders that have been able to grow and build things that big, like in 10 years, 20 years, whatever. I want that to be the overall legacy. I think my big, hairy, audacious goal is to really put myself out of business. I hope that there comes a time where I don't have to be this specific in the work that we do and that we actually are able to have equal access to resources. I don't believe that that's necessarily going to be done because the world is going to change. I think it's going to be done because we end up getting the economic parity that we need to be able to make our own decisions. And to be able to make our own leaders and to be able to come together and do things on our own, because that's actually the thing that's stopping us is us being on equal footing economically to have impact in all areas. And so I see this work as creating that. And whether it's investing in companies and praying that they become unicorns, or even if they just sell for a couple hundred million, that's like two or three more Black founders that have worth that we did not have a minute ago. Or even as I think about their employee. Most of them are getting some sort of equity stake. Like if that company goes well, their diverse employees also now have a little bit more wealth than they had before. And so I just want to be that force multiplier there so that we can start owning our own. I mean, I don't, I don't think anyone loves capitalism, but that's unfortunately the system which we're in. And so I truly want to use this platform for the best, mostly to make sure that we can get the opportunities to do the world the way that I think we should. So... That's what I hope to leave as a lasting legacy. 
And speaking of you being supportive of other people, I want to flip the script and say, how can anyone listening to this podcast support you in your endeavors? Yeah. One, if you're interested in investing in a fund that does a great job of investing in Black founders, hit me up. I'm at Kelly Nicole on everything. Other help is connections, people, support. If there's a company that's doing amazing things, send them our way. There's events that you want us to come to, let us know. Anything that we can do to be a service. I just turn this back to me being a service to other people. I can't help it. <laughs> but that's what I that's what I need for you guys to use me. <laughs> to, to do whatever it is that, that you that you guys need. But yeah, I, I, that's the help I need. The most help though I need is I got to raise this fund. So um, if you know people that are interested, if you, you your companies that you work at, make investments in funds, please let me know. I need you. I need you. That's what I need. And I will make sure that anyone that I know comes straight to you. <laughs> we, we've talked a lot today. We talked about venture capitalism. We've talked through the stages. We've talked through the personality that a VC should have, as well as the experience of a founder. But I always end the episode with giving the guests a platform to say mm-hmm. any other tips or advice that they may have for the audience. And so now the floor is yours. You know, I don't know if I have anything else to add because I think I've said a lot of really great things, but I will say that I generally live by the mantra that the best things are created when you have the human center. And so I just say for anybody that's looking to build, create, grow, start, whatever, always be thinking about your core customer, always be thinking about the end user and always be thinking about the people that you serve and you'll always do good work. Kelly, thank you for your time today. Again, just for anyone who wants to connect with you, where can they find you? I am at Kelly Nicole on everything. It's Kelly with an I, Nicole with a K. Um, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. I'm on all the things. Come find me. Thank you for listening to Black Tech Unplugged. I'm Dina McKay, and you can find the show on all social media platforms under Black Tech Unplugged. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this episode. And if you have a few extra minutes, make sure to leave a five-star review too. It will help me out a lot and help other people find the podcast. Until next time.